0: if i present the conclusion it doesn't work I have to lay out all the pieces the person gets the conclusion then i kind of repeat it and they're like yeah you recognize what i found and hopefully that happens in some of these poems by the end too and hopefully it happens when i'm standing in front of a crowd talking about property taxes
1: hello and welcome to the right question a radio program and podcast featuring authors from the american west and beyond The Right Question is supported in part by Humanities Montana and members of Montana Public Radio, and by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. I'm Lauren Korn, speaking today with Josh Slotnick about If Only, a collection of poems that document Josh's everyday. His work as a farmer, county commissioner, professor, friend, father, and grandfather these poems are poems of witness. But Josh and I talk about what this collection is right off the bat, so I won't say too much about that right now. Josh Slotnick has been farming with his wife Kim in Missoula, Montana for the last 30 years. He's also a father, grandfather, and an elected official. If only, is his second book of poetry. Josh, thanks so much for being here. Welcome back to The Right Question.
0: Thanks so much, Lauren. It's a huge, Honor. I love this show and I totally love this radio station. So it's a big deal for me to be here.
1: I'm so happy to have you. Let's start from the beginning of If Only. There are a number of what I'll call letters that begin your book, even before a poem appears. There's a preface from your publisher, a foreword by Roger Dunsmore, and you've also written an introduction to the collection. And in this introduction, you write, quote, These poems reflect more of an attempt at discernment than a try for literature. What did you mean by that?
0: So these poems are little nonfiction stories. So what I mean by discernment is keeping an eye and an ear open for when something comes by that's a story worth sharing. It's not just a journal entry. It was something that happened or something I saw or words I heard someone else say that I believe would resonate with other people. And for me, the act of creating these things is keeping an eye out for when those stories come by.
1: So then what's the difference between writing down these stories, Mm -hmm. these, as you call them, discernments, what's the difference between a discernment and what you call literature?
0: Wow, that is a great question. I'm imagining literature as someone generating these things more from their own mind, not necessarily that it's fiction, but that the impetus comes from them and they're, they're a brilliant artist. And I feel I'm more of a chronicler and I'm not really a great writer. I'm just someone who is, is there, has, has an ear to the ground. And I really like the attempt of discernment of keeping my eye open to tell when something comes by that's really worthy of capturing and sharing with somebody else, which feels different then I'm imagining what what it would be like to be a great artist alone in your studio and dreaming this stuff up that came from this wellspring inside you of genius. And I don't feel like I fit that at all.
1: I wonder if there might be something said about the idea of genre. The genre of poetry is often mm-hmm. not solely nonfiction. There is yeah. some fictionalization that happens sure. within the genre. And what you're telling me and what you're saying in this yeah. introduction is This is nonfiction.
0: It's totally nonfiction. My version of this, and I understand poetry can be myriad things, but for me, this is nonfiction. These are things that happened to me or I saw happen to someone else and thought, wow, there's a nugget in there that would resonate with other people. There's a bit of universality in the particularity of what I just saw that's really worth passing on.
1: Why did you choose to write this introduction at all? Why not just let these poems or these nonfiction stories, as you've, you've sure. been calling them, stand alone and, and speak for themselves? Wow, that's
0: a great question, too. So these poems all came for me from a certain time in my life and were very affected by perspective. And I wanted to attempt to define what my perspective was to help a reader understand where these things came from. They didn't just come out of thin air or a person walking around looking and listening. That person, like all people, has a perspective. And that perspective is like a lens through which I would see the world. And I wanted to attempt to define that. And for me, it was really this sense of what has been the center of my life, my whole adult life, which is our farm, kind of coming to an end in the way that I've noted and really transitioning to something else. I also transitioned to something else outside of farming that was really new, working in local government Mm -hmm. and being aware that this specific historical moment really feels more perilous, more fragile than anything else I've lived through. And all that combined, that that was the perspective through which I saw these things happening and then attempted to chronicle them. I just wanted to own that perspective and, and not have anyone think, there's objectivity. This is just what happened that day. This is just what happened that day through my perspective.
1: Yeah. And let's talk about that perilous moment yeah. that you're speaking about. But first, I want to talk a little bit more about your introduction. You you talk about the importance of storytelling. Mm-hmm. And and I, knowing you and your work, know that that is true. But I'm wondering then, if we're talking about genre and these poems specifically, what draws you to the poetic form? You said they're nonfiction stories. Yeah. Why not just write oh, straight it's, prose? You
0: really good questions.
1: <laughs> yeah. Thanks.
0: I think a poem is is like a concentrate. It's it's all everything pared down. It's just the meaning and enough detail for the reader to get to that meaning. And there are some poems out there now where I, I read them and I don't understand and I feel like, oh, the essence of this is some kind of mystery and it could go this way or that way. I'm not doing that. There's a meaning I'm trying to get across with each one of these things. And it's a poem rather than a short story or rather than a nonfiction essay because I want it just pared down to its essence. Mm
1: -hmm. Josh, how would you describe the tone of If Only? I think compared, I'll I'll just speak briefly about it, but compared to... The work that you wrote in Home Farm, uh-huh. there is, I think the, how how can I say this? I think that the the work that you're talking about, this local government work, yeah. um, this specific time that we're writing in, that seems to have had a really great effect on the tone of your poetry.
0: Yeah. I, it It's had a huge effect on me, so I'm not surprised it came through. These are powerful forces, uh, a generalized sense of anxiety, Mm-hmm. With the world we live in right now, the, kind of the perilousness of our historical moment, and I think I wrote this set against the the dark, ominous background music of climate change.
1: Yeah,
0: and a sense in terms of politics, and I don't mean Democrats and Republicans, but I mean kind of us working together to solve problems. Mm-hmm. That really isn't about solving problems, but it's about beating one another in in a game, almost like a sport. And it's erosive and brings about in me, a sense of cynicism that feels really foreign. I'm totally an optimist. Just to lay my cards on the table, I score genetically. I wake up every morning and I'm pretty much in a good mood unless something <laughs> bad happens, right? Sure. And I could feel these political forces eroding that away.
1: Maybe that's the tone that I'm coming up against or, or reading. It's the cynicism of an optimist. It is, oh, it, it, man, is, it, is really it is it well. is you're working against the cynicism that you are coming up against, but your optimism is just really working harder than it has ever had to work before.
0: Damn, you're good, Lauren. That's exactly <laughs> I, you said it better than I could have said it. That's 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 it. This that's erosion it. has it's eroded away my sense of optimism in a in a cynical world. And I'm still optimistic and I'm still gonna wake up every day trying hard, but it just feels really different mm. than it used to.
1: How has your writing process changed? If we're looking at, and and again, my experience of your writing is your published work. So there's Home Farm in, what, 2014? Yeah. And then if only in 2023, obviously the world has changed. We've been talking about those changes sort of vaguely. Um, how has your writing process changed in those years?
0: One of the big things that's changed in the last five years is my sense of audience. I mean, I'm writing it because I enjoy doing it, but I'm writing this with the ear of another person in mind. And I'm imagining that ear right now being a lot less sympathetic than they were five years ago.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Prior to my working as a county commissioner, I taught at the university and I got to run the peace farm and worked with Garden City Harvest, all things that would be really difficult for anyone to be kind of against, in quotes. And when I was writing just about farming and being a dad, or being a part of a family, it isn't. It's apolitical. It isn't something that's going to make push someone the wrong way. And right now, because of my job, I'm nervous. I have this sense, kind of all the time, that if I was to step outside with you right now and say, "Man, it's a beautiful winter day," that somebody walking by could be like, "You're a total bonehead. This is not a winter day." Or you know, that anything that I could say is really up for a, a, a version of a tear down or tear apart. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'm saying that a little, too, a little too extremely, but I feel that when I'm contemplating an audience, that there's going to be a skepticism or a dubiousness that had not previously existed. I Maybe that energy was always out there and I just hadn't tapped into it. Now I'm like up to my elbows in it.
1: So then what does that mean when you're putting pen to paper or you're sitting at your computer writing? Are you having a conversation with these theoretical or hypothetical people who are pushing back against you and and responding in kind on the page or are you just then anticipating pushback upon publication
0: it's that the latter, it's the and, latter. and even so most of what i've written is outside of politics but i feel that energy out there
1: mm-hmm. yeah You talked about your work at Garden City Harvest and the Peace Farm, which are organizations here in Missoula, Montana. I just want to give a little bit of context for people in the region. Um, Much like your first collection, which again is Home Farm, that, that collection, too, was a book of labor. It was a book of labor yeah. on your farm and labor within your family, your, your role of father. Um, and this book, too, is so much a book of labor. But these poems do not feel belabored. They do not feel like they are overworked in any way. Yeah. And so I'm wondering, are these poems, are they just flowing out of you, Josh? Or do they involve a pretty intense... Uh, editing process. Yeah,
0: the latter. So I write stuff down and like spit out a whole bunch of words mm-hmm. and then it's all paring down Sure. and moving things around to get there as quickly and as effortlessly as possible. I really enjoy that effort. The
1: editing process? The
0: editing process, all mm-hmm. of it is really enjoyable. But the yeah. editing is the, is the part that's most difficult, but I also really enjoy it. It makes you think about what's necessary and what isn't, and what's extraneous. How much setup is required to get a reader in the right context so he or she can fully understand what's coming next? Mm -hmm. Not too much context. And I try to be really careful in creating that context that it also doesn't become a distraction, really focusing on what's the thing here that is meaningful and It's a great exercise. It's a great exercise for me to do because I talk a lot in my job (laughs) and just in my life. So how much of that is extra? And to really think about what's the the nugget here? And knowing that if the extra stuff is in there, it takes away from what that nugget of meaning is, that that paring down process is enjoyable and is the challenge.
1: I'm thinking about your work as a county commissioner, and I'm wondering when it comes to concision and that paring down, I guess my question is if there's overlap in that concision between your poetry and your city governance.
0: Or that commissionering. Yeah, yeah, I
1: like that (laughs) verb, commissionering. Yes.
0: Oh, it's a great question. And it is actually something I find myself actively doing all the time. So because of the nature of my work, I'm kind of Neck deep in things that are complicated, not because they're intellectually challenging, but complicated because there's a ton of detail that comes from different places and have to put all that detail together, understand, and then convey the real meaning of what we're talking about to someone who isn't as steeped in those details. They're plenty smart and they're steeped in the details of their own profession, but in 10 minutes, how can I get across what I feel like is the nugget? What is the real meaning here? And a person needs to have a little bit of context to place them in the right spot. But too much context and it's just too much information and they're drowned in it and it doesn't make any sense. Not, again, not because they're not smart, just because they did a bad job of explaining it. It's the active explanation. is creating enough context to situate someone and then giving them the real pieces of the story. And then, this is key, they add it up. If I present the conclusion, it doesn't it doesn't work. I have to lay out all the pieces. The person gets the conclusion. Then I kind of repeat it, and they're like, "Yeah, you recognize what I found." And hopefully that happens in some of these poems by the end, too, And hopefully it happens when I'm standing in front of a crowd talking about property taxes
1: uh, as you were talking, Josh, that's what occurred to me. Well, it sounds like this concision, this paring down mm-hmm. um, this not so much translating. But allowing the space for translation to happen is so much the poetic process. Oh,
0: you you got it. You got it. The idea is, I feel like, for the reader to find it in these poems, and it's my job to lay it out so it's it's a very clear path. When they find it, it becomes theirs. If I just say it, it doesn't work. This is like show, don't tell the show. (laughs) And then they get there on their own. And then the last few lines or the last stanza should be like an exclamation mark on what they thought.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. If it um, works. You know what, Josh? I admittedly, I did not think that coming into this conversation I would find an like an equalizing idea of poetry and uh, your work as a county commissioner, oh, but there it is. I love it. There,
0: thank, it's there, it's there every every day. And I, I believe my, I will say, beloved colleagues Dave and Juan would say the same thing about wading through detail and if you use the word concision and Creating a, a a way for people to understand where they get to own what you've just described, that's the essence of it. And all that is set against a backdrop of dubiousness and cynicism and perilousness, which makes it more difficult. And I'm I'm not whining. It's just it's just the nature of the beast in 2024.
1: Yeah. So that's the that's the part that doesn't resonate in poetry, right? Most people who are coming to poetry, unless you are, say, a student that has to take a general class in mm-hmm. undergrad or something and just don't want to be in the class, I feel like poetry, in or- you, you, you want to be there. You yeah. want to be there. Yeah. There's no dubiousness in poetry. Yeah. There's more curiosity.
0: Or you, there's a huge difference in what you just described. Someone hopefully picks up this book because they want to be there. Right. If I'm standing in a conference room talking about property taxes, There's a bunch of people who don't want to be there, and they're really mad.
1: It sounds like property taxes are front of mind right now, huh, Josh? (laughs) Yeah, front of mind.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Here
1: in Missoula. You're listening to A Conversation with poet Josh Slotnick. I'm Lauren Korn. This episode of The Right Question is supported by Fact and Fiction, an independent bookstore located in the heart of downtown Missoula, Montana providing books for all ages, and supporting the literary community in Montana and beyond. More information can be found at factandfictionbooks.com. I want to get into this book. Great. I've been talking kind of broadly outside of it. Let's get into it. In a poem titled Letter to the Editor, you write about Missoula's unhoused population, yeah. the very real problems that they faced um, and are still facing here in Missoula, I'm wondering if you'll read that poem, sure, Josh. Sure, thanks.
0: So, when the pandemic hit, our local homeless shelter, the Pabrello Center, had to go to half capacity. People had to sleep six feet apart. They were doing the very best job that humans could possibly be, could possibly do, and folks were living outside. People were very mad, and understandably so. Oh, seeing people living outside is really socially destabilizing. It's destabilizing if you feel like, oh my goodness, those are my brothers and sisters, and we're the richest country in the world, and this makes my heart hurt. It's destabilizing if you think or if you feel I don't want to walk by someone who has nothing to lose and might see me as a source of resources. And am I in danger now? It's destabilizing to walk by people who are really not doing well and you want to get in an entrance and they're blocking your way. It, it's just bad no matter where you are on this spectrum of concern. Uh, we had to respond. Uh, there was lots of controversy about our response. What are we going to do with people living outdoors in this it, this population level we've never seen before? So uh, we took some action. I wrote a letter. And then it really felt to me like more of a poem than a letter. So uh, this poem is called Letter to the Editor. And there's a little epigraph. Lyndon Baines Johnson, the notoriously crass 36th president, fast walked down a wide sidewalk in urban Dallas, flanked by aides and reporters moving from one important thing to the next. He abruptly stopped, and the whole entourage did too. He laid a hand on a young aide's suitcoat shoulder, gently pulled him in close, and pointed across the street. A ragged man slumped against the wall of a building, head down, legs stuck out onto the sidewalk. LBJ barked to the fresh-faced aide, loud enough for everyone to hear. You know what the difference is between that guy over there and you and me? Holding his thumb and index finger an inch apart, he put his hand in front of the young aide's face and said, About this much! The pandemic came and the homeless shelter cut to half capacity. People became trespassers, feral like post-apocalyptic refugees hunkered down by the river. Tarps fluttered in the cottonwood red willow floodplain. Garbage dumps grew. Grocery carts died akimbo in the mud, upended chock-a-block. Someone built a dugout of sticks and lumber wrap. All of this along the banks of our beloved river. And so many saw it while driving over the bridge to Best Buy, Amazing Dave's, or Target. Fires burned under the bridge. The Montana Department of Transportation feared infrastructure catastrophe, and soon enough, spring's high water will subsume all of it. A blizzard of angry email clogged inboxes demanded attention. Arrest them! Buy them bus tickets to Spokane! Get them out! For God's sake, clean it up! A private landowner offered some of their property on higher ground for a temporary safe outdoor space, a sanctioned camp. Service providers provide services, but this is so much more than that. We needed to build a mini village. Meanwhile, meetings begat side conversations on services and meetings and capacity issues for months. Then, Missoula County stepped in to manage the project. United Way took point on logistics. The Office of Emergency Management folks worked closely with everyone. The Board of County Commissioners secured CARES funding. Hope Rescue Mission took on day-to-day operations. They'll staff it 24-7. Platforms and tents will replace shredded tarps blowing in the wind. It will be well-kept, orderly. Security will protect the people who live there and nearby businesses. A bus stop waits over by the Walmart. It will not be perfect. We will learn from our mistakes. Everything might get better. Bear with us.
1: I love that last line. Bear with us. To uh, ask for some
0: empathy and right? some and, and just to ease up a teeny bit.
1: <laughs> did you find that Missoula and Missoula County bore with you, bared with you? How how did how did they respond? How did the the community respond I mean, to um, your work on this?
0: Wow, I think initially with a great degree of skepticism that we were. Transferring a problem from one place to another and infecting an otherwise wonderful neighborhood with this disease. This temporary safe outdoor space turned out to be a huge success. Yeah. It doesn't work for everyone who has to live there, but the way that it's managed really, really works and it worked out well. I need to give credit to a whole bunch of people who were very dubious and skeptical and angry at the start because a lot of them did not hold on to those feelings in the way that some of us almost feel trained to hold on to what we're feeling no matter what. Mm -hmm. And that when it turned out that this really didn't disrupt life much, it was clean, orderly, not a problem, that people adjusted Mm -hmm. and kind of let go and moved on with other things. And this was, I wrote this when we did this, built the temporary safe outdoor space south of Missoula. We've since been able to move it off private land onto a permanent location owned by the county. We enjoyed tremendous generosity from a private landowner. And now when I say, when I talk to folks about the TSOS, first response I typically get is, where is it? Which means, yeah, it really worked. Yeah. But oh, a very strong amount of skepticism and anger and fear when we started. And we didn't know if it was going to work either. We just knew we had to do it. Yeah. Yeah. There's the the bear with us.
1: It will not be perfect. We will learn from our mistakes. What did did you learn from that entire experience? And are we as a county moving forward with that mentality that we are learning from the mistakes that were made? Yeah,
0: I think so. We learned in these sorts of, if we were to set more of these things up, we need to go with hard-sided shelters right away. We used soft-sided things. We just did what we had to in the moment. And... Tents, whether they're wall tents or made of nylon, are not meant to be outside, Mm. 365. Uh, We also learned that though security is important, really important for the folks who live there because a tent doesn't lock, and security is important for the people who have businesses and homes nearby because there's some scary people in their midst now, that that security doesn't need to be a person in a security outfit with a gun. What we found out actually worked better was to literally staff the site twenty four seven. Oh wow! So the people mm-hmm. who are there at night have ongoing relationships with the folks who live there, and they also hopefully have created relationships with businesses nearby, so they're a known commodity.
1: And violence isn't the default we for ha- dealing with it, right? And we haven't had
0: any. We haven't had any problems mm-hmm. next next to none because of the way that this thing is run.
1: Wow. What. Did you learn from that crisis then?
0: I learned that this type of solution works for some people, but not all. And that this is just part of a puzzle that's really hard to crack. There are folks who flunk out of the TSOS that are always going to be camping outdoors and that's socially destabilizing for all the reasons I said. And that needs to be dealt with. That person needs to be treated well. And people who live nearby need to not be affected by someone living in front of their business. And what we did at the TSOS isn't the solution for everyone. So we need more solutions, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: (laughs) more different solutions. And I I could go on. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I um, opened our conversation Mm -hmm. with talking about the letters that appear at the beginning of the book. Mm But there are a number of different correspondences in this collection. Not only this letter to the editor that you just Mm -hmm. read. That is, you know, a letter. Um, There is an email. There's an entire (laughs) section uh, devoted to dedicated poems. Mm -hmm. What's appealing to you, Josh, about a conversation through poetry?
0: I really think a lot about who's reading this, right. an audience. And mm-hmm. sometimes it's really written to a person and I'm excited for other people to overhear. Mm. And writing this to a person provides a kind of an avenue or a direction on where to go. And I have to say, I, it's not that I stole this. I <laughs> first encountered this in reading some Richard Hugo poems oh, and sure. just loved those letter poems. Yeah. And then thought, oh my goodness, I need to write so-and-so about this thing. The thing is going to be much tighter and better if it's in a poem. So it's going to be a letter poem, and I'm going to make this public as well as private. Yeah. So that's where I kind of got the idea for that.
1: Yeah. You just said a public and a private poem. Yeah. And I love thinking about the idea of public and private. Mm-hmm. How do you think about public and private, Josh?
0: for me, it's all around sharing. and if it's public, it's i w- I want other people to read this. And the private is if this is written right for one person, mm-hmm. but they can be they can overlap. It's a Venn diagram. it's not a it's not a mutually exclusive situation. Mm-hmm. And the poems that I in in this in this book it's called Poems Two. yeah, those are all really two specific people. and I'm so thrilled to share them with anyone who would like to read them. I, I want people to, get a glimpse of that sentiment, whatever it is, love or forgiveness.
1: That was poet, farmer, and Missoula, Montana County Commissioner, Josh Slotnick, author of If Only, out now from Sandy Horse Press. Josh and I will return to the second half of our conversation next week. Look for more information about Josh at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You've been listening to The Right Question. This episode was produced by Chris Moyles and me. I'm your host, Lauren Korn. Chris also engineered this episode. The artwork for The Right Question was designed by Molly Russell, and our music was written and recorded by John Floridus. Funding for The Right Question is provided by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. Many thanks to Humanities Montana for supporting this program since 2008. And thank you for listening. The Right Question is a production of Montana Public Radio.